As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Hello and welcome back to Danny in the Valley. It is our grand finale of season one. And so we're all about to take a quick break for Christmas. And when I say we, I mean me and my producers, Matt and Chica. We're a lean 21st century operation here at Danny in the Valley. But fear not, we will be back in January with loads of great new guests and episodes. But before we go, I wanted to do one last special, which you are about to hear. And it's all about robots. Now, for decades, the robots you and I probably think of are the ones that are stuck on the factory floor, bolted in place, doing the same task over and over. Well, that is about to change. Smart machines powered by artificial intelligence are about to propagate into the world like never before. And if you believe Elon Musk, this is the beginning of the end of humanity. Others are less hysterical about the new machine age. But what everybody seems to agree on is that the consequences could be profound for work, for society, for our relationship to technology, and really for what it means to be human. The way I like to phrase it is when you look at technology, we went from the transistor to the personal computer to the internet, and now we are finally at a stage where it's computers that can reach out and touch the world. I'm a humanoid robot. My purpose is to interact with humans. I don't see a smile. Come on, we're having a good time here. We are taking the giant robots of science fiction and fantasy that, you know, have been fighting across Transformers movies and, you know, Voltron and you name it. And we are using cutting edge robotics tech to bring them to life and then create a sport around that combat. This time might well be different. And I say that even with the knowledge of this 200 year litany of bad predictions behind us, this time might be different because we have machines that can do stuff that they could never, ever do before and where we absolutely needed people to get this kind of work done. By the end of this program, you'll have a much clearer idea of what's happening, why, and whether we should be scared by the rise of the machines. Stay with us. To get to the bottom of the great robot uprising, we have to go back a decade to 2007 at a research lab startup hybrid called Willow Garage, located in a nondescript building on Willow Road, just a stone's throw from Stanford University. Willow Garage was the brainchild of one man, a media-shy billionaire called Scott Hassan. And if anyone can claim responsibility for the rise in machines, it's him. Hassan was at Stanford with Sergey Brin and Larry Page back in the late 1990s, and is credited with writing much of Google's original code. He's also said to have invested $800 in Google just a few days after they incorporated, which depending on when or if he sold, could go down as the greatest investment in history. Google is now worth more than $700 billion. 
Either way, Hassan did fine. So in 2007, he started Willow Garage, and the aim was pretty amorphous. He wanted to advance robotics, which for decades had been this niche thing used in certain industries like the automotive sector. His idea was to simply bring together the best young minds in robotics and let them run wild. Now, Hassan isn't a big fan of media, but I did speak with several of the people he hired, many of whom have since gone on to start their own companies. One is Melanie Wise, who today runs Fetch Robotics, a developer of an autonomous warehouse robot. At Willow Garage, she was employee number two. When I first started at Willow, it was a grouping of projects that the founder was interested in. And we were working on an autonomous boat, an autonomous car, and it was, it was a bit fragmented. There wasn't like a very specific direction at first. They tinkered around for a bit before two Stanford grad students, Eric Berger and Keenan Weirabach, set Willow on a definitive course with a concept robot called the PR-1. They said, Hey, we have this, this thing called the PR-1. Wouldn't it be cool if we turned it into something metal and made it a, like a research platform? And so that's kind of where the personal robotics focus came at Willow. And it, it was clear at that point that Scott wanted to focus on that, the founder of Willow. And so we stopped doing the autonomous car, we stopped doing the autonomous boat, and we really started focusing on this robot called the PR2. Two major breakthroughs came from that effort. One was the robot itself, the PR2, which was a simple human-sized machine on wheels with two arms. It kind of looked like Johnny Five from Short Circuit. A forgotten classic, by the way. And the other was the system that made the PR2 go. It was called ROS, short for Robot Operating System. Now, it's not immediately obvious, but together, they were a very big deal. In fact, they were one of the key foundations for the explosion of robotics that has happened since. I'll let Keenan Weirbeck, the Stanford student who came up with the idea, explain why. The way PhDs work is you spend, you know, five years building a fragile robot, including together all the infrastructure. You might spend six months working on something new. You quick get a video, write a paper, and that's the end of that. And it was sort of like, well, that seems dumb. And it was sort of like, okay, well, maybe we can solve that problem. So we built, at Stanford, we built a thing called PR1, which is a robot that came before PR2, and a, a thing called Switchyard, which became Ross. And then, yeah, basically, once we figured out how big a deal this was and we found the right funders for it. Yeah, it just took off. I mean, everybody wanted it. Everybody who worked on anything to do with robotics was sick of basically do the same kind of integration and basic plumbing, if you will, work that everybody else had to do. And nobody was sharing anything. And Ross sort of broke that down. And now the whole community is, you know, working on each person in the community works on their own piece, can leverage everybody else's stuff. And actually, of course, now build a lot of cool companies the guys at Willow taught the PR2 to do lots of different stuff. Fetch a beer from the fridge, fold a towel, pick up a sandwich. You can see all these videos on YouTube, but I'll warn you, it doesn't make for particularly riveting viewing. They were parlor tricks, really. The important thing, though, was that Ross created a common base upon which other developers could build. It was a shared language, like Linux, the open source operating system that is used on devices around the world. It was a sea change. In 2010, Willow Garage put on what they dubbed a graduation ceremony for the PR2, after which they handed 11 of the robots, worth about $400,000 apiece, to universities around the world for the next generation of inventors to start tinkering. There are now 45 in the wild. So we're gathered here to celebrate the launch of the PR2 and the PR2 beta program. Introducing PR2. PR2 is a robot 
designed from the ground up to enable software developers to focus on new ideas and new technology. We don't intend to be the gatekeepers. We don't intend to slow it down. We want to accelerate this. We want to put the pedal to the metal and make this happen because I'm not getting any younger. I want to make this happen in my lifetime. And this is the vision of the company, to make robots happen and make this an industry. The robot uprising had been officially seeded. And in case you were wondering, that last voice you heard, that was Scott Hassan. Now, while he was busy trying to change the world, technology was doing what it always does, getting exponentially better. Artificial intelligence, another technology that has a decades-long track record of failing to deliver on its great promise, was experiencing a great resurgence. AI has always been held back by data. It needs incalculable amounts to crunch through in order to get smart. Until recently, the processing and computing power required to do that was simply too expensive to train the algorithms. Predictably, those prices have plummeted in the last few years. Now, every company under the sun, it seems, is claiming that what they are doing is AI. There's a lot of fluff here, but there are also some real advances being made. Algorithms that can detect stage zero cancer, digital assistants that recognize your voice and respond accordingly, cars that park themselves. It's enough to make the likes of Elon Musk sound the alarm about the imminent end of the human race. You no doubt saw the video recently of the Boston Dynamics robot doing a backflip and then raising its arms in triumph. It was creepy for sure. And the clip broke the geek internet. Musk, who has repeatedly warned about smart machines posing an quote-unquote existential threat to humanity, freaked out again. He tweeted, quote, this is nothing. In a few years, that bot will move so fast you'll need a strobe light to see it. Sweet dreams. Very dramatic. But it's worth pointing out that it's not just the brains of the machines that have got better. Depth sensors that 10 years ago cost $10,000 a piece now go for 100 bucks and provide 20 times the resolution. The smartphone boom has driven camera prices to virtually zero. So a high-definition camera like the one you'd find in your iPhone or Samsung and that a robot can use as its eyes can go for as little as 50 cents a piece these days. So if you take ROS and other similar operating systems, then combine it with super cheap sensors and rapidly improving AI that allows machines to understand and react to their surroundings, it's clear why the excitement and the fear are so palpable. For the first time, robots are being unbolted from the floor and unleashed upon the world. Travis Dale is the founder of Cobalt, the maker of a sleek-looking security robot that glides around offices checking identity badges and making sure that there's no bad guys lurking. Our particular company is indicative of a big trend, which is robots leaving sort of the crazy structured environments in factories and warehouses. I think what we're starting to see with a number of different robots, there's Cobalt and you have you know, companies like Savioc doing hotels and Symbi and Bosanova doing retail inventory and you know, Athon and diligent droids and hospitals. Like you're starting to see a bunch of these robots that are roughly like human size in human environments. And it's basically enabled by commercial spaces. And I think there's enough structure inside commercial spaces, whether that's, you know, ADA compliance on the mechanics, good connectivity, interacting with people who are supposed to be in the space that enables a lot of these applications to be practicable today that I don't think people were thinking about as much 10 years ago. Now, to be clear, there are a lot of wacky ideas out there, from a dog poop-scooping robot to things like Pepper. Pepper is a humanoid robot that is all white. It's about four feet tall, big, doe eyes, and a velvety voice. It kind of looks like a miniature, non-threatening stormtrooper. 
And as far as I can tell, it has no real purpose. I met one recently at a conference. I'm a humanoid robot. My purpose is to interact with humans. To do that, I have cameras and microphones in my head. I have three wheels, but I can't jump. Most importantly, I have 17 degrees of freedom. It means that I can move like no other robots and use familiar gestures so that we can understand each other and get along. The company behind Pepper, SoftBank Robotics, is trying to sell it to retailers as some type of super customer service agent, basically as a Walmart greeter that never complains. I'm dubious. There are much more profound applications, however. Take Abundant Robotics. It's a startup that has created an apple-picking robot that can pluck apples twice as fast as humans and for a fraction of the cost. They've been testing it in Australia as well as Washington State, the biggest producer of apples in America. And it's estimated that half the state's pickers, thousands of people, are undocumented immigrants from Mexico. In Trump's America, farmers are getting very worried that his hardline stance on immigration, his infamous wall, will make it even harder to find labor. Enter Abundant. I think agriculture is a big opportunity. Brian Gerke is a Willow refugee who now runs Open Robotics, which develops open source software, including Ross, to support the industry. He says companies like Abundant are just the tip of the iceberg. There was one in the news recently, Blue River Technologies, which is another barrier company that designed an automated system and in fact used Ross to do lettuce thinning. And they, they built these, in the, the press they call them sea and spray robots. So it's, it's using a camera to look at the ground and then deciding which plants to hit with a concentrated fertilizer spray in order to kill them so that you have room for the other ones to grow. And they built a very successful business on that. And then just this week, it was announced that John Deere is acquiring them for something like $300 million. Both they and a company like Abundant are tackling a problem that is endemic in the developed world, which is a lack of reliable labor to support food production. You know, we're now down to something like two or 3% of the populations involved in food production. And there are a lot of disagreements about wages and immigration policies. But the fact of the matter is right now that there just aren't enough people available to produce the food. The ability to introduce automation there to help food production, that'll be a boon to the world. It will absolutely come to pass. There's no doubt. The last time I heard from Blue River, which was a while ago, they said that something like 10% of all the lettuce grown in the United States was being thinned by their automated system. This is absolutely a thing that can be brought to scale. And this is where things get a bit messy. If the likes of Abundant, Blue River, and others do roll out on a large scale, they could affect, in a pretty fundamental way, the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of field workers, and by extension, the economy more broadly, and potentially the political relationship between America and Mexico. And this is what happens when the stuff of science fiction crashes into reality. And it gets to the heart of the hysteria, the idea that no job is safe. The robots aren't just rolling out into the apple orchards and lettuce fields. I met a British student recently, a guy called Josh Browder, who has created a robot lawyer which has already successfully challenged more than 7 million pounds in parking tickets. His bigger goal? To put every lawyer out of business. And he is busy attempting to do so, one line of code at a time. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. 
Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So are we really on the cusp of a post-work world? I pose the question to Professor Andrew McAfee, who's the co-director of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy and co-author of the book, The Second Machine Age. He's been studying this question in one form or another for years. The history of the industrial era should make us really cautious and really circumspect about this idea of the robots taking all the work. Because as long as there's been an industrial era, call it 200 years, there's been a parade of people and groups making exactly that prediction. And the first one, and one of the most famous ones still, are the Luddites, who went around smashing looms in the early 19th century in Britain because they thought that was going to take away the jobs of skilled weavers. Uh, Marx firmly believed in the middle of the 19th century that what the evil capitalists were going to do to further miserize the workers was capture their movements in machines and therefore not need the people anymore. John Maynard Keynes is one of my intellectual heroes. In 1930, he wrote an essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, where he foresaw the end of jobs as we were thinking about them at that time. There were blue ribbon presidential commissions in the 60s that looked at this. There's been this constant parade of this idea that whatever the new technology is, whether it's the steam engine or electricity or internal combustion or digital computers, this new amazingly powerful new technology was going to lead to mass technological unemployment. And it's really important to stress that for 200 years, that idea has been dead flat wrong. Just fall on its face wrong. Huzzah! We're safe! Well, hold on now. He's not done. The question is, is this time different? And I've been one of the people saying this time might well be different. And I say that even with the knowledge of this 200-year litany of bad predictions behind us, this time might be different because we have machines that can do stuff that they could never, ever do before and where we absolutely needed people to get this kind of work done. However, I try hard to be humble about how confidently I make that prediction and about the timescale over which this peak labor might happen, this post-peak labor world might come into existence. It is incredibly unclear to me how quickly that might happen. The most I'm willing to say about it is that I think I'm going to live to see it. McAfee isn't alone. Take Bill Gates. He became the richest man in the world by creating software that automated all kinds of tasks. Yet this year, he suggested the creation of a new robot tax. His argument was that as machines replace humans, the tax revenue we need to pay for police and roads and bridges will disappear. You can imagine how this landed in robot land. There's two reasons why people scoff at ideas like this. One is the Luddite fallacy that McAfee referred to which boils down to, basically, we've seen this movie before and it doesn't end that badly. 
In other words, everybody calm down. Here's Melanie Wise again. I just thought that was utterly hilarious because basically robots are computers wrapped in plastic and with other parts. So it's actually a computer task and we are going to have a big problem if we're going to tax every computer in the United States. I think one of the things that people don't think about, because, you know, this is constantly conflated with the jobs question. And in June of this year in the United States, there were 6.6 million people unemployed, but there were 6 million jobs available. And so it's not a robot problem. It's an education problem. There's 6 million jobs open in the United States, but there's not enough qualified people for it. And in the logistics space, it's the same problem. There's about 600,000 jobs waiting and available in the logistics and manufacturing space. And they struggle to find people who want to do those jobs or are qualified to do those jobs. Calling for new taxes and harsh laws also misunderstands a fundamental contradiction about robots. Yes, they can carry out increasingly complex tasks. They can decide when an apple is ripe, drive down the motorway, even do a backflip and really stick the landing. But they're also very, very easy to flummox. You know what the killer app for robotics is? I talked to a lot of people about this, and everybody agrees. It's Rosie from the Jetsons. A robot maid that can do the laundry, vacuum, wash the dishes. It turns out, even something as simple as that, doing the dishes, is apparently... Fantastically complicated. You can find whole PhD theses written around very carefully constructed demo scenarios where you have a robot laboriously load a dishwasher. And it, yeah, it sort of works in that setting, but could you just drop it into any home and deal with all the variability of that particular home and their dishes and their dishwasher? Probably not. No. So that's a, yeah, that's a very, very challenging task. And you can understand why. A robot would need to understand what dishes are dirty, which ones are clean, to be able to pick things up, but be dainty enough not to break anything. And not to mention the unpredictability of your house. What does a robot do if your kid decides to use it as a jungle gym? Will it know that a dish on the counter is dirty if it's not in the sink? Unpredictability is like robot kryptonite. So yes, the machines are leaving the factory, but they are still only useful today in relatively controlled environments, like Cobalt's office security robot, or say, Abundance apple picker. In the orchard, it's a dynamo. Take it to the produce aisle at your local supermarket, and it's useless. Robots are hard. They're not very good at doing pretty much anything at the moment. And they're very easy to confuse and flummox, as you say. So there's a good book by uh, an entertaining book by a CMU grad student called How to, How to Defeat the Robot Uprising, I think. And, you know, he, he prescribes some pretty simple things, which are actually based in reality, which is uh, have uh, glass walls that the robot can't see using its sensors and it'll run into them. Or just put, you know, two by fours on the ground around you and the robots that are on wheels will just come up and stop there because they can't step over them, right? there, you, you can have, you know, entertaining ideas like that, but then also just more broadly, robots are still not very good at understanding the world around them. They're not very good at manipulating the world. If you look at where robots are used right now successfully, they're in highly they're either in highly controlled environments like in factories where they're picking up car chassis and dipping them in paint and that's an incredibly highly controlled uh, environment or they're used in environments where they are moving around the world and trying not to run into anything and that's you know like your vacuum cleaners and your cars. 
And to to have a robot that can move around the world and actually interact with it in a meaningful way when there's variability, we're not there yet. Before we go on, I want to go back to one thing he mentioned, cars. Now, we're not going to go too far into the weeds here because self-driving cars is a whole podcast unto itself. But I just wanted to make one point. The self-driving car movement is hugely important to all of this. It's the biggest robot revolution of them all. Detroit is pouring billions of dollars into cracking it. And that's important because cars are big, fast-moving, dangerous machines. They're operating in a pretty uncontrolled environment, roads, and they have to be ultra-safe, which means that the technology has to be as close to flawless as possible. In other words, the advances made there will have a huge trickle-down effect to other areas, where if a robot does make a mistake, it's not a question of life or death. Autonomous driving is, it's the current hot challenge. There's a huge amount of investment and activity in that area. And the desire to solve those problems, I think, is likely to spin off other technologies. So there's a confluence going on, for example, right now between deep learning, which is a hot topic in the machine learning community, and autonomous driving, with this idea being that the only way these cars are going to understand the world well enough to act safely in it is if they use a machine learning approach like deep learning to process all the image and other data that's coming into them. And I think between those two, we'll end up seeing systems that, yes, they drive safely, but perhaps that same technology can be applied to other applications. Maybe then the robot that roams around your house can benefit from that, and it can use that same technology to better understand what's happening inside your house as opposed to on the road. Now, intellectually, I get that we are already surrounded by robots, your washing machine, your mobile phone, your car. But still, there is some deep part of our lizard brain that is put on edge by the word itself and the image that it conjures. I mean, we have all seen Terminator, right? On a cold day a couple months back, I drove east across the San Francisco Bay to an industrial yard in Hayward to come face to face with that robot nightmare. Its name was Eagle Prime. A 16-foot, 12-ton robot with giant arms and lots of very scary-looking weapons. It was built, literally, to destroy. What can this robot do in terms of... It has a chainsaw. It has a chainsaw. It has modular lower arms. So you saw the upper arms, and there's a modular interface to bolt on lower arms. Um, So... Uh, you know, it can pick up cars, it can put on new modular weapon systems. There's a giant knife over there that oh, wow. slams on as <laughs> if we want it. That's one of those we deemed too dangerous once we actually tested it. So this is the shoulder pitch muscle, mm-hmm. right? The hydraulic cylinder. This is the elbow. Each of these actuators can generate about 35,000 pounds of force, right? So take your favorite car, stack 10 of them, <laughs> and then bench press it, right? And that's the type of force that we're talking about from a single one of these cylinders, and we have around 18 on the robot. I should explain. That's Guy Cavalcanti. He's one of the founders of Megabots, a company that is trying to create a new sport from scratch. What sport, you ask? A giant fighting robot league, obviously. Eagle Prime is Megabots' latest creation. So we are taking the giant robots of science fiction and fantasy that, you know, have been fighting across Transformers movies and, you know, Voltron and you name it. And we are using cutting edge robotics tech to bring them to life and then create a sport around that combat. The live action version of all of the movies that you've been seeing for the past 20, 30 years. It's the dawn of a new age. For millennia. 
Mankind has tested their limits with fists. A couple months ago, Eagle Prime duked it out with Sudabashi, a team from Japan in an abandoned steel mill. They chose the location to ensure no one got hurt, which is probably sensible. One of the weapons is a giant cannon that shoots coconut-sized paintballs at 120 miles an hour. The battle is recorded, complete with color commentators and a dramatic pre-fight buildup that you might see before a prize boxing or MMA match. For decades, we've imagined giant fighting machines built in our image. That technology is finally here. The age of giant fighting robots has arrived. Two teams, a world apart, are about to do battle. It's time for the giant robot duel. Nearly four million people have watched the fight on YouTube. The plan, ultimately, is to put on live fights. 100,000-seat stadiums, merchandise, the whole nine yards. Cavalcanti is a serious roboticist. He used to work at Boston Dynamics, the maker of that creepy, backflipping robot. So I asked him, didn't he feel like maybe he was contributing to the robo-panic with his giant fighting bots? The funny thing is, I don't think so. Because I was there when we started seeing those narratives at Boston Dynamics. That was way before Google acquired them. Right. And like when you have this dramatic, like I am making a replacement human, right? Here's the Terminator robot that could take your job and take your life and blah, blah, blah. Like it's very easy to project there. At this scale, it's more like, oh, that's the science fiction thing. That's awesome. Like I've wanted to see that forever. And it really doesn't, we don't get that reaction of like, contributing to the robots are going to take over. And I think it's, it's because what's one robot going to do? Now, it's probably worth pointing out, Megabot's machines are not autonomous. There are people inside controlling them. But, Cavalcanti says, some of their fans are clamoring for them to take the people out of the equation entirely. There are some fans who want us to take humans out and just rip the robots to shreds. We'd probably test that at some point and just see what that's like. In other words, a step closer to Elon Musk's dystopic prediction. It may sound like harmless fun, but remember, the lizard brain. What machines look like matters. Yves Bahar is one of the world's most renowned industrial designers. He's helped create his fair share of robots. From the snoo, a robo-bassinet that reacts to a crying infant by rocking it back to sleep, to Juicero, the good-looking but ridiculously expensive Wi-Fi-enabled juicer that has become one of those totemic Silicon Valley failures. But I digress. His approach to robots make them look the least robotic possible. Don't do Pepper, don't do Megabots. A case in point. He recently helped design Cobalt's security robot. It has no arms, no eyes. It's more IKEA floor lamp than RoboCop. There's absolutely no reason for it to look either like a very techy gadget or a physical human or robot. It's providing a function, which is to, again, observe, report, and concierge a space. And that's not that different from what a chair does. You know, it just happens that it has self-driving capabilities and that it has AI on board and that it will, it will learn about the people that are in this environment over time. But, you know, why should it look like, what's the name of our maid there? Why should it look like someone in between Rosie and iRobot? doesn't make sense. It's not because you, that's where your imagination goes. That's where it should be. When technology sort of fails to, to become something that people 
feel comfortable with and really find important in their lives, it's not because of the technology, it's because it's badly designed. It's designed in ways that it breaks a, a human relational code or it creates a dystopian scenario. And for all this talk of dystopia, don't misunderstand. There are lots of amazing things happening as well. As the industry argues ad nauseum, their beloved machines can be life-enhancing or even better, life-saving. That is what is happening right now in Rwanda in East Africa, where flying robots are literally dropping blood from the sky. You heard that right. You'll remember Keenan Weirbeck, the creator of the PR2 and Ross. After he left Willow, he was at a loose end. But there were exciting times. Ross had opened a brand new front in robotics, and he had a lot of incoming ideas. I was trying to figure out where I wanted to focus next. I basically made a living out of people coming to me saying, hey, I saw you, you know, did Willow and Ross, like, can you help us do a robotics company? And I basically made a living out of teaching them or basically telling them not to make a robotics company. He saw lots of off-the-wall stuff. I'll never forget the starfish idea. This guy had a, he literally brought in a dried starfish and he said, look, we're going to make a $20, I don't know why he was so focused on that number, starfish that you're going to put in your bathroom and it's going to crawl the whole bathroom all the time and clean it for you. A robotic starfish is what he called it. That was a fun one. Wireback had lots of conversations with lots of people before stumbling onto an idea that robotics might actually help solve delivering blood and medical supplies to remote hospitals in the developing world. This is a huge problem, especially where roads can be unpassable in the rainy season for months on end, and needs can be urgent. And the anecdote that really has resonated with me as, as <laughs> over the years was this guy we met where you know, his wife was going into birth, right? Basically postpartum hemorrhaging, uh, basically bleeding from childbirth. is It's a huge consumer of blood everywhere in the world. And it's also one of those things where like with blood, mother survives. Without blood, it, it's almost impossible. You know, this guy, his wife was in labor and the, the doctor's like, look, we don't have your wife's blood type here. Here's a cooler. We're pretty sure this hospital over there has your wife's blood type. Hurry back. His solution was Zipline. It's a fleet of drones that can deliver supplies in minutes to places that may take hours or even days to reach by land. The planes have a 10-foot wingspan, so they're sturdy enough to make it through the tropical storms they encounter in the places they operate. And they're launched into flight with a high-powered catapult. Once airborne, their next trick is to figure out where to drop the package, which drifts to the ground under a paper parachute. And just a reminder here, we're talking about, in most cases, urgently needed blood for transfusions. Here's Wyra back again to explain how it works. Basically, the, the plane, when it's coming down to drop, it's measuring live the wind speed and direction. And so it'll compensate. The way you described it is accurate. The, the box has a little paper parachute. The whole thing is biodegradable. It has a little paper parachute. And so it'll, it'll measure the wind speed and direction and adjust so that when it drops the package, whatever way the wind's blowing, it'll then land on the ground where the customer actually wants it which is usually in the little plot of land right outside the hospital or, or lab. The best part, when it comes back into base, the plane lands on a bouncy castle. It'll poof onto a big uh, inflated mat that's literally made for us by a bouncy castle company. When you see the pictures, you'll laugh because it's, it's this big brown cube, basically. And every time we order from them, they're always like, are you sure? Because they're used to making, you know, colorful things with turrets and, you know, slides. <laughs> like, they're like, you just want a brown cube. Are you sure? Anyway. Zipline started in Rwanda and will soon be ramping up in Tanzania. And I know what you're thinking. Surely this must be a break glass in case of emergency type thing. 
I mean, dropping blood from the heavens and hoping for the best? Wrong. For the hospitals we serve today, we are the only way they get blood. This is a solution to improve healthcare for billions of people. And it actually didn't require, you know, a medical science breakthrough. It didn't require, you know, a billion dollar R&D budget. It's solving what is unfortunately the reality of most of the world's healthcare, which is that healthcare suffers from very practical problems. In a way, Zipline, with its outlandish efficiency, perfectly captures the allure of robots. It's saving lives. It's not replacing anyone's job. Everybody wins. When you talk about the rise of the machines, this is the less discussed good side of that coin. A hopeful vision is that people will have a very high standard of living without having to work as many hours as they work now. Maybe the 40-hour industrial work week will change into a 20- or 30-hour week that gives people a very high standard of living, but does the things that work does. And by that, I mean provide income, provide community, provide some structure to a week and a career, and, and kind of give people a whole lot of valuable things in their lives. It's easy to, to make fun of work and to read Dilbert cartoons and think that it's just the soul-destroying thing. Uh, when I see communities where work has vanished, that's where I see the, the souls being destroyed. We had 225 years of the first machine age. The second one is, is gathering steam right now. It is not going to be as dominated by human drudgery and toil and work as the first one was. Chances are we're not going to see humanoid robots like Pepper or the weird backflipping robot invading our lives anytime soon. The robots may be smarter... And they may be everywhere, but they're likely to be much more subtle. The best definition I ever heard for a robot was it's a machine that doesn't work yet. <laughs> what is uh, because as soon as it works, it's, it's called a dishwasher. It's called a, you know, the Roomba. Or, like, it's called something else. It's not called the robot. Even your car, like by and large, most cars are effectively a robot today by like any usual definition. So I think it'll just kind of blend into the background. In 2008, the Disney film WALL-E depicted one take on our automated future. Humans with nothing left to do for ourselves were corpulent, feeble, and apathetic. The earth was piled so high with rubbish, we'd abandon it. But there was one bright spot. The star of the show, WALL-E, our little waste-collecting robot, was actually pretty nice. Think about it. Like It's not until very recently that we've been seeing good robot movies. Most of the time, the robot's trying to kill you. The problem is, is Wally also showed a pretty bad version of our society. <laughs> if it doesn't take our jobs, it'll make us fat and lazy. <laughs> Let's hope we can do better than that. And just as we were finishing this episode, the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco approved, in a landslide vote, harsh new restrictions on pavement delivery robots. The rules mean that in San Francisco, the cradle of West Coast innovation, there is now a hard cap of nine robots that are allowed to operate within city limits. The machines will only be allowed to operate in low population industrial areas and to travel at a maximum speed of just three miles an hour. Norman Yee, who proposed the law, was clear about the perils he was trying to avoid. He said, our streets and our sidewalks are made for people, not robots. Maybe in the future, there will be robot lanes. So. For now, the pavements are safe. And maybe your job is too. But for how long? And that is it 
for the first season of Danny in the Valley. We are done. I want to thank everybody for listening. We will be back in 2018. In the meantime, please subscribe. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give a rating and review. We're going to be back in January with lots of great new shows, great new guests, lots of produced things like this. So please rate, review, subscribe, and we will see you next year. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.